This is Suno India Production. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android and iPhone app. Download it now. The national uprising of Tibetans in 1959 against the People's Republic of China led to the forming of a Tibetan government in exile as tens of thousands of Tibetans sought refuge in India. Nepal and Bhutan also provided refuge to traumatized Tibetans. Now over the past 3 decades thousands of young Tibetans have chosen to migrate to the west. But India does remain the political and the cultural center of the Tibetan diaspora and its national cultural movement. And Tibet continues to be an integral issue in Sino-Indian ties. If you look at India's border conflicts with China including the bloody clashes in Galwan in 2020 it is centered primarily around Ladakh that China claims as being part of its administered region of Aksai Chin and Arunachal Pradesh that China calls part of South Tibet. On episode 6 of Beyond Nation and State on Suno India we will talk about the centrality of Tibet in the dynamics of Sino-Indian relations the question of the reincarnation and succession of the Dalai Lama and primarily what is happening inside Tibet today keeping in mind that any information flowing out of Tibet is very little and tightly controlled by the Chinese hi everyone welcome back to another edition of this foreign policy podcast beyond nation and state i'm smita sharma i'm an independent journalist and your host and you can listen to all the episodes of the podcast on suno india as well as apple and spotify now on this episode i have with me sikyong penpa sering he is the highest political leader of the central tibetan administration or the tibetan government in exile sikyong many thanks for finding time to join me here on this podcast thank you for having me just before i talk about the current situation in tibet give us give our listeners our viewers a sense of your own personal india connection um you know uh, i think most of the indian people also know that uh, his holiness the dalai lama had to flee tibet in 1959 even after we tried to live under the 17 point agreement for eight long years from 1951 to 59 that was imposed upon us and when his holiness came there were some 80 to 85000 that preceded or followed his holiness in 1959 60 and my parents were one among them and uh, uh in the initial stage uh, since the land belongs to the state uh, the prime minister of india pandit nehru ji wrote to all the state chief ministers asking who would be willing to provide land for rehabilitation of the tibetan refugees who have just come into india and karnataka was the first to offer 3000 acres of land um, there is also a short story behind this because his holiness came to india in 1956-57 and at that time he also went down to south india uh, visited nagarjuna konda which is the birthplace of nagarjuna and we follow the nalanda tradition and nagarjuna is one of the most prominent buddhist teacher of that time uh, so at that time his holiness met with nijilingappa uh, the chief minister of karnataka at that time when his holiness came into exile he was the first to offer so i was born in this place called balikuppi in south india 
um, which is one of the largest Tibetan communities outside uh, Tibet. And uh, then uh, I was just like any other Tibetan those days, we used to work on the farm because that is the only source of living for us because Indian government provided one acre of land for one person. And we had to work on the farm, we had to work on uh, poultry, uh, not necessarily poultry much, but then uh, on animal husbandry and all that. So we grew up working very hard on the fields and also learning about hearing stories from my parents about Tibet, because those days Google is not available, was not available, TVs were not there. So it's all in your imagination of how or what Tibet is all about. And then after I finished my grade 12 uh, at a school that was set up by the Indian government for the Tibetans, where we could study Tibetan language, culture, religion, and history, aside from all other subjects that we have to study, then I joined uh, Madras Christian College for my economics major. And during those times also, this was between 85 to 88, and there were a lot of demonstrations in Tibet in 87, 88. And then we also organized a lot of protest demonstrations in Chennai, uh, because we don't have compact communities in Tamil Nadu. So it was uh, a varied uh, group of people uh, coming from different parts to participate in those uh, protest demonstrations. So when I, after I finished my college education, then a uh, few years after that, I got elected to the Central Executive Committee of Tome, which is a regional body. And two years after that, in 96, I got elected to the parliament. And since then, they have been electing me again and again in 2001, 6. 2011, during which time I served for seven and a half years as Director of Tibetan Parliamentary and Policy Research Center here based in Delhi and also Speaker of Parliament for seven and a half years. And then I, I was posted to Washington, D.C. as Representative of His Holiness uh, for a little more than a year. And uh, and now uh, people have elected me as Sikong, uh, or popularly known as political leader. Uh, did you pick up a certain number of Indian languages in your growing up years? Yeah, coming from South India, of course, we can speak little Kannada, we can speak little Tamil, and uh, Hindi we had to learn up to grade 8. So even though we are from South India, we can speak Hindi, so few languages. I think my wife speaks more languages <laughs> than me. She can speak Malayali and Telugu also. Wow, I can't speak that many languages here. But, you know, you were in Delhi recently to speak at a seminar, uh, which was organized by CCAS, the Center for China Analysis and Strategy. And it was themed on China's Tibet policy under Xi Jinping. You made a couple of sharp comments there. So I'm going to pick up certain threads of conversation from there. One of the things that you said was the, chi the Tibetan thought is closer to India than to the Chinese thought. Can you elaborate on that? So it's not just closer. It originated from India. So our link with India, our historical link with India goes back 2,200 years uh, when the first Tibetan king uh, was enthroned. This first Tibetan king, Nyatitsembo, the shoulder uh, enthroned king, uh, is said to have come from India. There are some variations to the story, but the first king of Tibet came from India, so that's how related we are. And then maybe during the uh, uh, second, third century, fourth century, 
there was during Kanishka's time, and the, there was a lot of uh, uh, spread of Buddhism in Central Asian region, and one text had also came to Tibet. But at that time, we didn't have the language, and the text was not decipherable to the Tibetans, so they considered it as a secret text, which was kept for many, many centuries, till a language was invented in 7th century. Again, the first emperor of Tibet, Songzheng Gampo, sent his minister to invent a Tibetan script, and this script is based on Brahmi and Gupta script. So even now, if I uh, uh, say the Tibetan consonants, you will find it very similar, like Hindi. In Tibetan, it's ka ka kanga, cha 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 nya, ta ta thana. So it's very similar. So the basis of our language and the basis of our religion, Shantarakshita coming to Tibet in 8th century, followed by Guru Padma Sambhava and uh, Shantarakshita's disciple Kamala Shila, because they were both Chinese Buddhists and Indian Buddhists in Tibet during 8th century when Tisong Tezeng was the uh, emperor. And uh, Shantarakshita advised Tisong Tezeng, why don't you translate all the, since you already have a language, why don't you translate all the available Buddhist Sanskrit texts into Tibetan rather than me having to teach Sanskrit to all the Tibetans. So that is exactly what Tisong Tezeng did. So we had the numerous uh, translators. So we must have had the biggest transliteration house in the world in 8th century whereby we translated every available Sanskrit Buddhist text into Tibetan. And today we are proud to be a repository of one part of ancient Indian wisdom um, that has a lot of potential to spread more peace and nonviolence and compassion and forgiveness in this world. So that's uh, said during those period till 9th century, Tibet was a huge empire extending from the Chinese capital Xiang, which we invaded at one time goes up to present-day Samarkand in Uzbekistan. So that was the extent of Tibetan Empire. Then Tibet disintegrated for 400 years. Even during those periods, Tibet was politically not stable. There was not a single ruler who could control the whole of Tibetan territory. But then there were a lot of religious fervor. And before Buddhism, in a kind of way, vanished from the land of its origin in India, Many Tibetan scholars went to India, climbing over the Himalayas, not just once, even thrice, four times, to meet with, uh, like, Marpa. Marpa is a very famous scholar who came to India some three, four times, met with Naropa and Tilopa. So during this period, again, two other traditions emerged, the Sakya tradition and the Kagyu tradition. And what was there during... Uh, Tisong Tezen's time in 8th century was called the Nyingma tradition, the old tradition. So you already have these developments of revival of Buddhism inside Tibet. Now, since the marauding invaders from the West came to India and ruled India for many centuries, then we lost contact with India and we focused more on studying the teachings of the Buddha and the commentaries of the Indian Pandits and then did our own additions to all the experience that they have gained. So we developed a very unique uh, kind of Buddhism, which is, uh, again, uh, the, the system of reincarnation also is very unique to Tibetan Buddhism. But the young inside Tibet today, the Tibetan youth, how close are they to the Tibetan Buddhism? How do you see religion being influenced by the Chinese? Oh, China, uh, Chinese government uh, with Xi Jinping's, uh, you already talked about one nation, one culture. That's Xi Jinping's policy of one language. They're forcing the use of Mandarin in every school. It's not just in Tibetan areas. It's in Uyghur, Mongolia, everywhere. And uh, religion, of course, uh, 
from the time of independent Tibet to now, the number of monks and nuns have come down drastically. Management of these mon monks and uh, monasteries, which used to be traditionally in the hands of monks and nuns, have been now taken over by multiple security agencies, plus the United Front Work Front Department. So then again, of course, you have the ovalian setup of uh, CCTVs to monitor movements of monks and nuns. If you have to move out of your monasteries, you need at least four or five different permits to go out. Uh, then the, now the atheist Chinese government wants to be responsible for setting up curriculum of religious studies in the monasteries. And since 2007, they laid a, a rule called the Order Number no. 5, whereby the Communist Party would be responsible for recognition of reincarnated lamas and what they call as living Buddhas. So this is primarily aimed at the next Dalai Lama. So they are not bothered about the 14th living Dalai Lama, but they are more concerned about the yet-to-come 15th Dalai Lama because they know that if, can, if they can get hold of the 15th Dalai Lama, they can control the Tibetan people. Let me just go back. When you say that they are trying to force the learning of Mandarin in schools, what was the system earlier? Are students not learning Tibetan at all? Or, you know, till some levels it is being replaced? What has happened? Well, this is a drastic change. Uh, of course, from Mao Zedong's time, uh, there was policy, but they had to use Tibetan to spread their propaganda because there's, there was no other way. Tibetans don't speak Chinese, so they had to use Tibetan language. But then the, through the Cultural Revolution, a lot of things old were destroyed from 1966 to 76. Then Mao died. Deng Xiaoping took over. He talked about uh, discussing on all other issues other than independence. We send our fact-finding teams in the early 80s and also two exploration teams for dialogue in 82 and 84. Then Hu Jintao was pres uh, posted as party secretary in the Tibet Autonomous Region and he imposed martial law. And since then, it has become much, much more stricter during Jiang Zemin's time to Hu Jintao's time. And now during Xi Jinping's time, it has become all the more stricter because at one time we used to fear demographic aggression because China is 1.4 billion. We are only 6-7 million in Tibet. But Tibet is 2.5 million square kilometers, almost one-fourth of China's landmass. So we thought that a lot of Chinese, well, Chinese are still coming. They are quite overwhelming in the cities and towns where they can make money. They don't go to villages where they can't make money. Uh, but it is not as much as we feared. So the tactics that is being used by the Chinese government is now to, to, to send all the Tibetan children into boarding schools, which are very similar to the colonial style boarding schools. And when you point that out to the Chinese government, Chinese government point fingers at United States and say, how did the Americans treat their natives or the Canadians with the First Nation people or the Australians with the Aboriginals and the Torres Strait Islanders or even the Scandinavians with Sami people. So they know what they're doing. They know these countries have committed mistakes in treating their native people. And that these countries are also making up to what they did. But China is now knowingly, deliberately doing this to erase a strike at the very foundation of Tibetan identity, which is the language. And based on that language is the religion. And that dictates our way of life and our way of thinking. So all that is going to be erased. 
So to some extent, that also has security implications for India because we have, we as Tibetans respect India so much. We consider India as the Aryabharata, as the land of the Buddha, our guru, and we as Chelas. And for us to, for Tibetan to come to India on a pilgrimage to Bodh Gaya, these are ultimate experiences in life. So that emotional equation that Tibetans in general and the Indian enjoy that is going to be disturbed significantly when you brainwash a whole generation of Tibetans, give them only Chinese education, Chinese historical perspective, communist ideology, loyalty to the party, and all that, then they lose that past history of our connection with India. So today, sometime back, people were telling me, oh, Chinese government is recruiting Tibetans in the PLA, and then you have Tibetan army in the Indian army that protects the northern border. So will Tibetans be fighting Tibetans against Tibetans? I was like, do you think the Chinese government will trust Tibetans with machine guns on the border? That is a huge question. But I have to ask you this, you know, when it comes to the information from within Tibet, how is it that flowing out? Because even for journalists who travel to Tibet, you know, it's only if it's the Chinese authorities who are facilitating basically a PR trip or a very controlled trip. More often, you know, there have been cases where we've heard story uh, news reports, very unfortunate news reports of self-immolation in protest. How do you keep in touch with Tibetans who are there and your families, your loved ones? Yeah, you mentioned about 157 Tibetans having self-immolated soon since 2009 till about last year. And uh, it's very sad. They they burn themselves to death. It's not like the Tibetans cannot kill Chinese. They can kill Chinese. But His Holiness has always said that if you take up violence, I will no more be responsible for the cause. And Tibetans desist from taking violence. And uh, non burning oneself is also a very thin line between violence and non-violence. So we always request the Tibetans not to burn themselves to death. If they live longer, they can serve the cause more because our population is less. But they are driven to such kind of a desperation because these people who burn themselves to death are mostly between the age of 17 to 35 they have never witnessed cultural revolution. They have never witnessed independent Tibet. They see only what the Chinese government is doing to the people of Tibet and Tibet. And that is what is driving to their desperation of burning themselves. The, uh, the, the free, the flow of information has also become very difficult. As you say, the non-Tibetans are not uh, uh, allowed to visit particularly journalists or diplomats, even if you are allowed they ask you to write the truth, and for them, truth is only what they tell you to write. So sometimes they say, oh, Tibet has become a socialist paradise. Then I say, why don't you allow other people to see the paradise for themselves? So uh, unfortunately, uh, the, there is a very strict uh, control on the flow of information. If somebody is caught sending out information, that person lands up in jail. And if somebody uh, receives information from outside, keep it to yourself or erase it, that's fine. But if you redistribute that, you land up in serious trouble. And then you know that uh, WeChat is the only app, the Chinese app that Tibetans inside can use. They, they have no access to WhatsApp, they do Telegram and Twitter and all that. So, uh, but again, unfortunately, because of China's belligerence on the Indian border, India 
banned WeChat, uh, US-China trade war, US banned WeChat. So only those people who can use VPN still have access to Tibet, Tibetans inside, but they have to be very, very careful about what they say. They are, everything is monitored. So all your actions uh, has implications on your near and dear ones. You know, So we resort to both conventional means and also modern means for information collection. Uh, it is difficult, but that does not mean to say that there's no information. Uh, I cannot go into the details of how we try to get that, but there are Tibetans inside Tibet and we are Tibetans here outside Tibet and we have this bonding and then there are ways to get information. But sometimes we get delayed information. You hear only after 15 or 30 days after the incident had happened. So that is the level of control on the flow of information. Uh, but we will be resorting to more other ways of collecting information. But how big is your worry? I know you've already spoken about it, but do you have an idea when you're talking about the numbers or the statistics, say, for instance, uh, what percentage of the Tibetan youth today inside Tibet perhaps have moved away? from Tibetan Buddhism or are not following a certain kind of religious, uh, you know, emotional bonding that the Tibetan youth in India or other places may have. What is your apprehension in terms of the shift that may have happened inside? Inside Tibet, it's not happen happening voluntarily by the Tibetans. The state is forcing the Tibetans to stay away from your religion. Now, if you are a member of the Communist Party, uh, then you cannot go to monasteries. You cannot even carry a rosary to reflect your allegiance to a particular religion. Uh, you are forced to stay outside that limit. You are not supposed to cross that limit. And those uh, 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 others mostly are facades of religious uh, practice because there is no real teaching going on. Uh, the monks and nuns who are prominent in their studies, normally they travel from place to place to preach. And that those uh, movements also have been restricted. So all these add up to a lot of difficulties uh, in many ways. Uh, uh, and that also now with no journalists and other. That's why China is very good at hiding the evidences. And that is also the reason why you don't hear about Tibet much in the international community, whereas you have the huge state-engineered concentration camps in Uyghur, where they have more population because the dynamics are different um, than Hong Kong and all others. It's not a competition between Tibetans and Uyghurs and Hong Kongers or Manchus or Mongols. Since the perpetrator is the same, the message to the international community is the same. All of us are suffering, including the Chinese people inside China. Coming to the question of the succession, the reincarnation of the Dalai Lama, and we know the sharp differences there, the Chinese trying to impose, uh, you know, um, their version of it. What do you see the way forward as a solution? You, Tibetans talk about, and His Holiness also speaks about finding that middle path. How will that middle path come about? Can it come about without a dialogue? No. Uh, middle way approach or the middle way policy is a Buddhist concept, as you know, avoiding extreme polarities. In this case, we are talking about not the reincarnation, but the political uh, issues concerning Tibet. We are talking about the other, one, one polarity is the historical status of Tibet as an independent state, and other polarity is the situation of Tibet right now under the repressive government of the uh, 
CCP. So we have to find a middle ground where the Tibetans will have the freedom to practice its language and religion, promote its culture, uh, preserve its way of life, and protect its environment. So these are the basic freedoms that are taken for granted in all the parts of the free world, which is not there in Tibet. And for us, what is more important is the common interests. His Holiness also draws inspiration from the European Union. Even now, he says, if it had not been for the Union, Europeans would have been fighting with each other. So we are a landlocked country. We either have to depend on India or China uh, for economic benefits. And we believe that Chinese people who have been deprived of spirituality for so many decades look up to Tibetans as, uh, because we're talking about more than 300 million uh, Buddhists in China. So uh, we can play a positive role in promoting spirituality to fill that vacuum in the minds of the Chinese. So these are ways we are looking at, but the reincarnation is a completely different uh, uh, issue. So the way forward is, uh, the best way is for Chinese to keep away from the process because this, this, they know nothing about this. They don't believe in it. And reincarnation has to do in the belief that you get reborn after death. Uh, it's a transmigration of the consciousness of the uh, person to the next life in another body, which China don't understand. They don't accept, but still they want to be uh, responsible for recognition of the reincarnated lamas because for, for their political ends. Uh, that is why the, my message to the Chinese government is, do you or have you not learned enough lesson from the Pension Rinpoche saga? Because in 89, the 10th Pension Lama was murdered by the Chinese. There was no post-mortem done, done on his body, but there are a lot of signs that he was poisoned even when he was very, very fresh the previous day. So his reincarnation was selected in 1995 by his holiness, and that boy just disappeared with his family. We still don't know whether he's alive or not. If he's alive, whether he has been given the traditional education to take up his responsibilities or not. So they imposed their own Pension Lama on the Tibetans. And when the Pension Lama used to visit Tibet, they force all the government officials to go and meet with him and listen to him. They pay the public to go and listen to him. Even as recent as last week or a week before, this same pension was visiting Tibet and they were paying 100 yuan to listen to him. So you can't force people to. What the Tibetan people's perception of this. Chinese select Pension Lama is just another political leader. We don't recognize him as the next, the 11th Pension Lama. So on the streets or the markets in Tibet, you don't see the Chinese selected Pension Lama to be, the photos being sold, or you cannot sell the Ch Tibetan, uh, His Holiness selected Pension Lama. So you see only pictures of the 10th Pension Lama just to show the displeasure that they don't agree with the Chinese selection. So in the event, Whenever that happens 20 years down the line or when His Holiness reaches the age of 13 because His Holiness is committed to live very long. And that is why I also tell the Chinese, let us see whether His Holiness the Dalai Lama outlives the Communist Party or the Communist Party outlives uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. But the fact remains that uh, this is a purely religious uh, uh, matter and it is His Holiness the Dalai Lama who is going to be reborn and he and only he has the right to set the process in motion and put people that he entrusts to look for his reincarnation. He will even leave signs as to where he would be born. And he has made it very clear that he will be born only in a free world. 
and uh, he had uh, uh, said this many times and this has been consistent whether they should be a 15th Dalai Lama or not will be decided by the Tibetan people since 1969. So yes, that being said, there are a lot of uh, discussions about whether it will be a reincarnation or it will be an emanation. Emanation is a process whereby you select a younger person when you are alive as your reincarnation. So those things are also possible. I think all the options are open and it's up to His Holiness the Dalai Lama to decide what options should be, uh, what he should decide. Coming to India's Tibet policy, I mean, we have seen Prime Minister Narendra Modi during his first swearing-in ceremony, he invited Mr. Lobsang Sange, which didn't happen during the second swearing-in ceremony in 2019. Mr. Antony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, when he came in in 2021, he met with the representatives of uh, His Holiness. They have opened a uh, bureau. So uh, when it comes to India's response, I mean, in one year, we see India celebrating His Holiness's birthday with pomp and glory. Another year, we suddenly hear a hushed silence. Has there been a flip-flop? And, uh, you know, would you say that uh, Chai- the Tibet still unfortunately remains maybe a political scoring point between India and China instead of the centrality that it should hold in the dialogues? I think I have always been saying we have to be pragmatic. When we talk about the middle way policy also, just as you said, this cannot be resolved without talking to the Chinese leadership. There's no other way. If you if you take up violence, it's a different matter. Otherwise, through non-violent negotiated way, you have to. Until such a time that we're able to find a solution to this Sino-Tibet conflict with the Chinese, we have to reach out to the international community. But when we reach out to the international community, we don't expect the countries that we reach out to to leave aside their national interests and take up Tibet's national interests. And that's a fact. Now, when a time comes when the interests of that nation and interests of the Tibetans align, then it becomes a bigger force. So since 2020, uh, uh, when uh, or even before that with the Doklam uh, issues, you know, and then now with Galwan and Tawang and all those with China's belligerents on those border areas, places in Ladakh, I'm sure you must have gone that side also. Nothing grows there on the mountains. You just see some greenery on the riverbed. Otherwise, nothing. So why is China doing all this? That there's a question that keeps recurring in our mind to justify what, why is China doing this? So that is why I keep saying China is very insecure today because all everything that's coming out of Xi Jinping's mouth is security, 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 and they will do anything in the name of national security and social stability. So the, the reasons why I mentioned this is because you see all signs of paranoia uh, of course, autocratic dictators, they have, uh, they are always suspicious. Uh, they, they don't trust anybody. So trust is one thing that China lacks. And trust is one thing that Xi Jinping lacks also. Even though all the people, all other six members in the Politburo are his own people, uh, trust factor is missing. So not more than three Politburo members can meet together because, without the uh, permission of the president, that itself shows that he's afraid of internal coup. That convention was there, but it was reinforced more during his time. And then to rule out military coup, he makes sure that all the generals are transferred every year to different places so that the generals don't build a strong relationship with the cadres. So that does not 
that that's to rule out military coup, but there could be many other things because even despite all your efforts, things will emerge. Then the fact that they spent, China is the only government that spends more money on internal security than external security manifests a deep distrust between the rulers and the rulers. It's not just the Tibetans, it's the Chinese people, it's the Mongolians, it's the, the Uyghurs. Hong Kongers, now with sabotaging with Taiwan, Taiwanese also have to be very, very uh, wary of uh, China's assertiveness in the region. So these China is doing, these, these uncertainties, insecurities are there. If there is no communist party, there is no foreign relation, there is no foreign trade. So that is the reason why they keep these hotspots burning with India, with Taiwan, South China Sea, Senkaku, all that. So depending on the severity of the threat to the survival of the Communist Party, they will definitely attack one of these places. Then that can instill nationalism in the Chinese people uh, that they have always been, uh, you know, uh, invaded by foreign powers and China have always been ruled by others. So when it comes to those kind of stories, then Manchus are not Chinese, Mongols are not Chinese. But when it comes to China as a nation, then Mongols are Chinese, Manchus are Chinese. So it depends on their interpretation of how they see it. But I see China, a very insecure China. And with power being uh, consolidated in the hand of one person could expedite China's downfall. And right now, uh, the economic outlook does not look very good for the Chinese. You are talking about rural bankruptcy in the governments, uh, rural banking, uh, breaking down you know, housing issues. Uh, uh, so export, import, everything is affected. There is contraction of the economy. You're talking about 11.6 billion Chinese youth from 17 to 24 being unemployed, being asked to work on the field. So anything could spark anything. When it comes to stomach, then if there is effect on the stomach, livelihood issues, then China is going to face, have a lot of, otherwise nobody is going to attack China from outside. You don't have India attacking China because India is always a very defensive, peaceful country. And then you, you, you can't expect NATO also to hear. But it's all because of China's assertiveness that defense spending of all nations from Japan with Kishida spending on uh, defense, uh, Taiwan, uh, Australia investing in nukes, uh, this nuclear submarine, some 386 billion over the next few decades. And then India also having to spend more. Now you see how much more infrastructure development has happening on all sides of the border. So there are a lot of dynamism uh, now involved in Yes, as we speak also, there are a lot of things happening and uh, we are watching that and then see. Of course, the Chinese would claim that because they feel threatened with all this aggression in the Indo-Pacific and the Quad formation that they are kind of raising their stakes. Finally, one question, you know, because we see so much of infrastructure building happening within Tibet, rail, airways, um, also the border defense villages coming up high infrastructure development really how is this impacting tibet from the inside and also the larger climate conditions uh of course all this uh, whenever it comes to tibet uh, and uh, when it whenever it comes to problems uh, for the chinese government to resolve any problem the solution is development 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 they they can look 
only from a materialistic point of view. They don't understand the aspiration of people from any other aspect, cultural, linguistic, you know, and all that. So that is the fallacy of the Chinese government where they, they fail to realize the real aspiration of the people. And when it comes to Tibet, and I do hear about some conversations at the higher echelons of the Chinese uh, leadership, and then they say, why are Tibetans complaining? We spent so much on developing Tibet with the railways, roads. But who are the roads for? The railways for, you know, by 2030, there will be a huge network of railways. By 2030, all the roads were buildings. Then you have the Pakistan-China corridor coming up. So Tibet is going to be uh, deluged with infrastructure. And this definitely is not good for the environment. Uh, so we are not against development. We are for development. But then again, there has to be due consideration to the environmental impact of this uh, development. Of course, for China, more than the environment, more than the livelihood for Tibetans, this does not have much trickle-down effect. So it is the strategic aspect. But you do think this will affect the glaciers, the rivers, it will have a direct environmental catastrophic impact. Any developmental acti activities that promotes more human activity always have imp impact on the environment. And Tibet, uh, from our perspective, we call Tibet as the heavenly abode land surrounded by snow mountain ranges. Westerners call Tibet the roof of the world because the average altitude is more than 3,800, 4,000 feet, you know, well, the 4,000 meters, and it's equivalent to about a little more than 12,000 feet above sea level. And then it, Asians call Tibet as the water tower of Asia because some 10 major rivers flow into India, Pakistan, into Nepal, into India, Bangladesh, four countries in South Asia, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam, and uh, Burma, five countries in Southeast Asia, and two major rivers in China originate from Tibet. So this, we are talking about a huge uh, concern, not only for the Tibetans, but for the whole region, because the countries that we are talking about are some of the most densely populated countries in the world. And some experts are estimating between 1.8 billion to 2 billion out of 8 billion people have something or the other to do with rivers that originate from Tibet. And China does not share any hydrological data with any of the downstream countries. Forget about water sharing. So if there is access, they use Tibet like a water tap. If there is access, they let it flow. You have flood in the downstream countries. If there is shortage, they close it off and you have drought in there. And the downstream countries are so dependent on economic, uh, on China economically that they are not able to speak up. But what is happening in on the Brahmaputra at the bend where it takes a U-turn to come into India is going to be very severe for, for, for India. Because when I was there in Arunachal Pradesh last year, the river that is, it was not rainy season. The river uh, Brahmaputra, when it enters India in the Arunachal region, we have Tibetan communities there in Tuting area in Arunachal Pradesh. And we found that the river was very muddy. And this was not going on for the last few days or few months. It has been going on, going on since 2018, which means you say there is a lot of work going on. And according to reports, China is building a dam twice the size of Three Gorges, which is the biggest in the world for hydroelectricity generation. And then you can imagine how much land is going to be inundated upstream, which will destroy so many unique flora and fauna. And then these Himalayas having come, come out of a tectonic shift between the Asian plate and the Gondwana, as people still say that Himalaya is growing. And this whole area 
seismic zone. If something happens to the size of that kind of a dam, then Arunachal, eastern Arunachal is going to be washed away. Whole of Assam would be washed away. Bangladesh would be washed away. And India has no information on on such development in in Tibet. So that's, those are going to be very very consequential. So we are not just talking about environmental impact on Tibet. Uh, of course, uh, Chinese environmental scientists now call uh, Tibet as the third pole because Tibet has the largest amount of glaciers and permafrost that feeds all these major rivers, other than the two other poles. According to IPCC, the the poles are melting at three times uh, the normal average. Uh, on the Tibetan plateau, it's melting at twice the uh, speed uh, than other places. And the jet streams that flow over the Tibetan plateau has its impact on monsoon uh, rainfall in the region, uh, let alone the perennial rivers being a supply of water for the perennial rivers. So these have a lot of consequences. We are talking about future food security in the region, future climate security, uh, the climate security in the region, also uh, water security in the region. So this, this will be a lot of conflicting. So I sometimes tell our audience, we are political refugees today. But if you don't care for Tibet's environment, you're going to have so many environmental refugees into the future. You know, so which leads to my question in conclusion. I mean, there are thousands of youth today who have actually left India, who have migrated to the West, who are studying abroad. Uh, what does it mean to be? What does it feel like to be a Tibetan refugee in India today? What are the biggest challenges? that the young continue to face? As a community, we have a dispersing uh, community. So a lot of young people now educated, we are not able to provide them with commensurate employment uh, in the rural areas where Tibetan settlements are located. Whereas these compact communities are also very important for us to preserve our identity. Through these compact communities, we have our schools, we have our monastic education institutions and cultural institutions, arts and crafts. And that's how we managed to replicate and restore many of the monasteries that were destroyed inside, inside Tibet. So uh, this is a challenge for us to get the community. So we are physically becoming more distant, but then uh, our job is also to make sure that we are emotionally closer. That's why one of our efforts is to reach out to every single Tibetan community. And my promise to the community is that I'll come two times in five years everywhere. So I've visited most of all the communities in Canada, all of North America, still left with some in South America, southern part of the United States. Then I've finished half of Europe, half of yesterday to done. So Japan, Australia, all that we've finished. I toured every single community in India. I cannot travel to Nepal because China's hands are up to the immigration officer in the airport. They have my name, but no photograph. So I cannot travel to Nepal. And Bhutan, we have a very small population. So these challenges are there. But at the same time, we always look at the brighter side. We always try to look at the opportunities that provide. So now you find Tibetans in more than 25 different countries. Wherever there's a sizable number of Tibetans, they have formed associations. And they have become citizens in those countries. They speak the language. They understand the system. So who better than them? to be the best advocates for the cause. So that is why we started a platform called Voluntary Tibet Advocacy Group, WETAC. So we'll be having a series of meetings under the Department of Information and International Relations to encourage the young Tibetans to take active part in the promotion of the cause of Tibet. Right. So if you're looking also for a lot of cultural material, historical context to read up on Tibet, I think that will be a good platform to follow as well. 
thank you so much for being in conversation on beyond nation thank you smita yeah thank you so that was Sikyong Penpasere, the Sikyong of the Central Tibetan Administration of the Tibetan Government in Exile. And that's all that I have time for on this episode of Beyond Nation and State. Do share your feedback, send us brickbats, but also share some love and share the episode with all your friends and all those who need to know about what's happening inside Tibet. Make sure to download the Suno India app and you can also listen to all our past episodes on Apple and Spotify podcasts as well. Thank you so much.